In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa alaykum. Okay, so for those who uh, missed last week's lecture, a uh, very quick recap. And then we continue where we ended, which is, as we had said previously, we're trying to finalize our discussion on the topic of materialism. <clears throat> so we explored a few of the... First of all, we looked at materialism as a worldview and the main principles that make up this worldview of materialism, including the main principle, which is everything is made up of matter. And then matter is eternal, and all interactions and everything that happens in the world can be explained by material or materialistic interactions. So we looked at that at a more, let's say, rational or philosophical level. And then, let's say, because of the importance of the topic, we decided to stop because, as you know, this was right after we talked about, as human beings... As human beings right now, we basically have two options to live. So one option is to live a theistic life, a religious life, a life where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is at the, at the center, in the middle. And another way of living which basically has matter in the center. Does not have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Does not have religion, does not have anything beyond whatever we find in this world. So we started looking a little bit more into this claim of materialism. What is it? What does it mean today? These biggest thinkers, the mo people who are the most influential and who are pushing this idea, this worldview of materialism today in the world, what are they actually saying? What are the biggest claims? So a lot of it has to do with science and using a lot of the progress and the discoveries and the results of scientific research and exploration, and they're deforming them or distorting them into a field that is not science, which is really philosophy and religion, or metaphysics, as they, as they say. So basically, because science says this, this is how you should live. Well, science cannot do that. Science is meant to describe to you how the world actually works, so it's descriptive. You give descriptions of the world. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you how, what you ought to do, what you should do. This falls under morality, ethics. This is why even in fields like, let's say, biology, they now have fields called bioethics. Because they know on their own, they cannot decide. They need to introduce a little bit of uh, moral philosophy. They need to get people from the other side of the campus into those fields so that they help them decide, okay, we have all these capabilities that science is allowing us to play around with, but should we? And should we draw a line somewhere? And if we do it, is there a way to do it that's better, that will probably cause less harm for humanity now or for future generations and so on and so forth. Okay, so the big topics that we spent a little bit more time on that I thought is going to be beneficial to you, first of all, because these are the most influential topics today. So if you talk to people who actually are well-read, educated, who are aware of what's going on, or simply influenced by these kinds of thinkers and thinking going on in the world, these are the topics that are the most influential and that have the biggest impact in society today. So the first one 
was the beginning of existence, or the beginning of the universe, which uh, was a claim, as we explored from Lawrence Krauss's book, is it possible to, for the universe to exist out of nothing, to come into existence from non-existence? Okay, and we looked at his book, Universe Out of no from Nothing, and you know we supplemented it with other theories, but basically they all come down to the same thing, which is this idea that the nothing they're talking about is not really a nothing. It's still a something. So that just pushes back the question, where did that come from? So the space and the quantum fluctuation and the laws of nature that they need for this to work, where did they come from? And we've talked a lot about that, so I'm not going to push that more. The second topic that we talked a little bit about, we spent a little bit of time on, was the beginning of life. So we explored this notion that is it possible for life, whatever life means, we know intuitively what it is, but how do you define it? How is it possible for life, which is living, something living, alive, how is it possible for it to emerge out of the non-living, out of dead matter? Is that possible or not? Okay, so this is based on the assumptions of science today. There's a lot we can say about that. But we explored it only based on the model that science uses today. And they call it abiogenesis. And this is becoming an entire field where you have the possibility of life coming out of non-life. So they're trying to figure out what are the conditions under which that can happen. So they're going, let's say, in the depths of the ocean where there are openings uh, basically cracks in, on the floor of those oceans and where the heat from the center of the earth is coming out. So that creates a temperature and that creates gases and other chemicals that interact in a certain way that may allow those proteins to synthesize in the way they want them to and out of which eventually life would emerge, right? So we talked about all of that and we spent a lot of time talking about what mathematicians and statisticians and biologists and others have said about the probabilities of that actually happening. And it's not even at the complexity of an entire, you know, living cell. It was at the level of a single, a single protein that needs to come together with another protein, with another protein to create the genetic material required for that initial whatever entity, a lot more simple than a cell, uh, to exist. Okay, so we spent a lot of time on that. And inshallah, you can, if you missed that, you can go back to the recordings of that, which will be uploaded shortly. Um, okay, so that was the second topic. The third topic, which we tried to cover last uh, in the last session, and it became a little bit, I guess, too, too voluminous, too much to, to cover, uh, so we split it into two. And uh, we said that this is a gigantic topic. We could spend a lot of lectures on it if we wanted to, but we're just trying to skim the surface and just get an overview of these topics. So the last one was this idea that is a human being fundamentally different from the rest of the animal kingdom or not? So how do we explain human beings? So we're not going delving deep into the theory of evolution. We didn't do that. We talked about one little part of it, one gene. How do we explain that one gene where a lot of biologists and geneticists have spent a lot of time now trying to understand how, why did that suddenly appear 200,000 years ago? And it seems that a lot of the things that uh, are distinctive in human beings seem to be linked to that specific gene. And it seems to have just popped into existence. It, it's a fusion of other genes found in other creatures that suddenly took place without 
it wasn't gradual. Uh, it just appears suddenly about 200,000 years ago, and then that allows human beings to have speech, and that uh, allows human beings to become suddenly very different creatures and to go into a different line of evolution. But the truth is, nothing has evolved in the last 200,000 years in human beings, and we read a lot of passages about that, that basically say we are the exact same creature that we were 200,000 years ago. That's one. And the second thing is this idea that if this is nature pushing a species into a certain place, which is what how evolution works, then how do we explain the capacities that we have in our minds, in our brains, that would be, as we read in the words of the those who introduced the theory of evolution, Wallace and Darwin, they seemed superfluous. They seemed too much for what the human being of that time would need. If the human being is just another animal, why do you give him a brain capable of doing mathematics and you know, doing philosophy. That brain has not changed over 200,000 years. Okay, so initially where that came from seems completely unnecessary for the requirements of those, those creatures. Okay, so we spent a little bit of time talking about that. So we said the topic, we looked at it from two different angles. One of them was more the, the biology and the evolution. So we talked a little bit about that. And then we talked a little bit about looking at a human being from a more philosophical point of view. And so we, we looked at a human being and the way they think. And we thought that human beings, they do not think based on perception. They don't react to a stimulus that comes to them from the outside. They are actually capable of thinking based on notions. They have notional, conceptual thinking. They can remember things and think about them. And then we took that, we took it from very simple thoughts, but it's still abstract, that we don't find in, human, in other animals, to much more abstract thoughts that absolutely do not exist to our knowledge in other animals. For instance, you know, the impact that a human being, it does on a human being to think about their own happiness or the happiness of their society or the morals that go with it or the idea of personhood or the idea of rights or the idea of responsibility or praise or admiration or blame or, right? So we talked about all of that and we said, you know, at the end of it, when we look at it, these are all notions that don't seem to exist in any way, shape, or form in the animal world. We don't even see hints of them. And human beings have built their entire worldview based on those notions, like the notion of personhood. Okay, that does not really exist in other animals. Or the idea of intersubjectivity, where I know that I exist, and I know that you exist, and I know that my perception of reality and yours may not match, and therefore, I have to have some empathy to try to imagine the world from your point of view, maybe so that I can conduct myself in a way that recognizes that your conditions are maybe different than mine. You will not find that in the animal kingdom. So there's not even a hint where animals seem to be evolving in that direction or will ever get there. So animals react based on whatever is wired into them genetically. Uh, they have been the same forever. If you look at an ant although they seem to be living in very complex, highly sophisticated societies where there's a distribution of all the tasks and so on and so forth. You look at bees, ants, termites, or other animals that seem to be living a very complex social life. They have been living that same life for as long as we find them in nature. Nothing has changed. If you go back 10,000 years ago, the monkeys were living the same way as they are today, but human beings are not. When you look at a human society 10,000 years ago and today, it's extremely different. 
if you look at the in the animal kingdom, nothing has changed. So why is that? What changes there? What's the difference? So we spent a little bit of time on that, but the idea was to transition from that difference that we find in human beings and the rest of the the rest of nature as we know it to the idea of trying to spend a little bit of time understanding the mind. And why are we spending time doing that? Because, again, the point is to understand reality, either from a materialist point of view or not. So if you only believe in a materialist worldview, in a materialist point of view, then you're going to say that the only thing that can exist is matter, and the only way to explain anything that we call the mind is possible to explain all of that with what we find in the cranium, which is the brain. So anything and everything that is a human being is basically this body with the skeleton, with the muscles and bones and all of that that you see in front of you, and including the brain. And this limits the activity of the mind to what they call the gray matter, the brain, okay? What we find inside our, our head, the bones in our head. So the point, the purpose, or what we were trying to do in the last, uh, this last part, and inshallah we'll finish with that, this last part about materialism, is to spend a little bit of time exploring some of the activities related to the mind. To see whether they can be all reduced to the brain or not yet. So someone who wants to say, I believe in materialism based on science, and science can explain all of this. So we're going to, I actually had a lot of books, but I chose a couple of them, to look at what scientists are saying about some of the activities of the brain or the mind, and whether they can be reduced they can be translated into activities of the brain or not. Okay? So that's the point here. So with that, we will have explored three big topics related to materialism. The beginning of the universe, the beginning of life, and, you know, generally speaking, the topic of humanity or a human being. Are they the same as the rest of nature or are they a little bit different? And included in that human being is a mind. Because we keep saying that this is what distinguishes a human being from the rest of creation. Okay, so it's this mind. The idea of the mind. So we're not going in detail and we're not going to spend too much time on the philosophy behind all of this. We're just giving examples. I thought it would be a cooler way to present these activities of the mind. I'm not going to spend time on the stuff that's very well known and very traditional. And as we said, so please go back and listen because we introduced more of this topic in the last lecture, but we split it in two at the end because of lack of time and other reasons. Um, here the idea is simply to present all of these different activities as they are presented by scientists and to see to what extent they can be explained by the normal activity of the brain. And if not, then... Maybe the materialist worldview is too restrictive. It doesn't allow us to explain reality. And this claim that some people want to turn science into scientism and say everything is matter and everything can be explained by physical interactions, maybe it's limited. Maybe it has restrictions that we need to look beyond. So we'll see what some of the scientists are saying about this. 
So, so let me go to this book. I'll spend a little bit of time reading from this book today. So this book is written by uh, a man by the name of Mario Beauregard. This guy is one of the top uh, neuroscientists in the world. And he has specialized, he has a few books. He has another book called The Spiritual Brain. Okay, but this one is just called Brain Wars. And so the, the, the smaller title here is The Scientific Battle Over the Existence of the Mind and the Proof That Will Change the Way We Live Our Lives. Okay, very respected guy in his field. And he didn't write the book. He put the book together, but every chapter in this book is written by an authority and a specialist in their field. Okay, so I'm going to go through it very quickly to give you samples of the activities of the mind that we cannot really explain with activities of the brain. That's the point of the book. That's how it's written. So I'm trying to make it clear to you that there's a distinction to be made between mind and brain. Brain is this physical thing inside your head. Mind, as we're going to see, we're going to have to accept that it goes a little bit beyond this physical entity that's inside our head, that's limited in time and space. Why are we talking about this? Because we're linking it to materialism, and hopefully, inshallah, when we talk about it through other means, but I'm, I'm opening the door to it now, so that we're open to the idea that there is something beyond matter that's associated to us that we can call, for instance, the soul. Because if you're a materialist, you do not believe in the soul. You believe that there is this only this body, this body comes into existence and it's alive and that's normal. But because matter just comes alive this way and then it just dies. And it dies because of physical interactions and it's alive because of physical interactions and everything stops there. Well, maybe there is a little bit more. Okay, so I, I do recommend reading the works of this, uh, this man, Mario Beauregard. So the first, um, the first topic that I wanted to talk about was the something that I think all of you should have at least heard the words before, and most likely you know what the what these words mean. Uh, the placebo effect. So does, has everybody at least heard the words? Do they know generally speaking what the placebo effect is? Okay, so. I'll, I'll just start with this tiny little quote from, from the beginning, and I'll, then I'll explain to you what it is. So the chapter about the placebo effect is called The Power of Belief to Cure or Kill. Okay? So the entire chapter is a series of documented medical cases. This is very well known in the medical world, okay? And they keep the amounts, the amount of studies about placebo effects are, it's ridiculous, but I don't have time right now to... Each one of these topics, there's books upon books and articles and lectures and documentaries and it's a whole field, each one of these topics, okay? So very quickly, the guy who, who wrote this uh, medical historian, Anne Harrington, she says, placebos are the ghosts that haunt our house of biomedical objectivity. The creatures that rise up from the dark and expose the paradoxes and fissures in our own self-created definitions of the real and active factors in treatment. So can anyone just say very briefly what they know about the placebo effect, what it is? 
like the negative side of you, like temptations maybe? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not even. We're not there at all. Twelve months. Placebo effect is basically um, uh, to be told something and to believe it when it's not actually happening. It's just using your brain to, like, in the medical field, to like cure something without anything actually physically happening. Yeah. So now you applied it to the medical field. Yeah, that's what just. Yeah, but it could be any field, right? So basically. Based on a belief, because I believe something, I'm going to have, I'm going to feel the effects of that thing I believe. So if I believe that this water cures, regardless of whether this water cures or not, regardless of whether it does or not in reality, if I really believe this water cures, all the medical data, clearly shows in the world that based on the belief alone, people have a huge success rate by drinking this water and being cured. This is the placebo effect. On the other side of the placebo effect, there is something called the nocebo effect. So why did they split that? Because there's a lot of studies about it and they're trying to be very precise. They're very, very meticulous. This is scientific. So it's the opposite. It's if I believe that this is a poison and it's not a poison, but I believe it is and I drink it, I may be very severely harmed and I may even die. And so the entire chapter, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter, is case after case of medical, medically documented cases or metadata, and the entire book is written that way. So a meta, meta study is basically, I don't do the study myself on 10 or 50 or 200 people. I look at 50 studies where every one of these studies, they looked at 1,000 people. So I do a meta study. I don't do the study myself, I go study all the other studies. And I, take a, I make them conclude something, if I can. So the whole book is based on either studies or meta studies. Okay, so at the end, this is how the, the, this chapter ends. Through our beliefs, and so of course there's example upon example of how people actually end up either living or dying because of that belief. And then it was shown that the things that they thought were really effective and they were, were going to cure them were actually placebos. And so today in the medical field, if you take a placebo, you're basically taking a pill most likely filled with sugar or some other powder. And you're part of a test, Right? So when they do a test to see if a medication works, let's say it's a pill, they usually have two or three groups of people taking it. They have a control group, and then they have a control group so they're not taking anything or something like that, and then the group that's taking the real medication, and then the group taking the placebo, and no one knows what, who's taking what, except the people administrating the test. And sometimes they do a double blind, so the people administrating also don't know. It's only revealed after so that they don't play around with the data. And when they do the study, they see that the success rates of the people who are taking the placebo, when they believe that this is actually going to cure them, are huge. Sometimes they're higher or as good as the real medication. And there's case after case of how the pharmaceutical companies use that to their advantage. So it's all about the marketing. If I can convince you that this is going to work, and you actually believe it, it's going to work. 
or it's going to work as well as it works for the real cases, where someone may not even know what they're taking and it works. That's where you, you know it's, there's, it's objective. There was no belief in there. They were passed out and someone, something was introduced in their body and it does something. Okay? So the, the chapter ends with, Through our beliefs, we hold the power of life and death in our hands. Science has shown again and again that we believe, what we believe can significantly influence our experience of pain, the success of a surgery, because they talked about how there are people who had to go un- undergo surgery, and it, during the war, they ran out of the, uh, of the medications, the, the painkillers, basically. So they had to give them things by telling them, this is a painkiller, you're not going to feel any pain while I operate on you. And it was just water with salt in it, for instance. And it worked. And the person went through the entire surgery because this is in the middle of the war and this person is about to die if I don't deal with them. It's a soldier. He's brought back. I have to deal with it live. I'm out of the medications I need. I just tell them, this is what I'm using on you. The doctors write that. And this became a whole way of dealing with things. And we're going to see even more cases different than the placebo with that. Okay, our expectations can trigger our bodies to do the work of regulating our physical and emotional experiences. Based on what I believe, the body is going to react differently. So they measure how the brain's activity changes, how the heart's activity changes, based on what I believe. Not what I'm putting in the body. And as we have seen, they can even interfere with the efficacy of those drugs or with scientists' abilities to judge whether those drugs are really doing their work. Some researchers, now I'm going to jump over this. Um, In addition, the way in which patients process these signals may be influenced by their history of experiences related to the milieu of therapy. The precise mechanisms that transform the detection of signals into placebo responses remain unknown. They have no clue how this works. All we know is your beliefs are making your body do something different. There's the materialist explanation, the physical explanation, very clear. You're taking something, goes in the body, and something happens. Why is my belief changing my body? Why does my belief change the rate at which my heart pumps blood, or changes the pressure, or changes my diabetic state, or, or, or? It seems likely that the signals associated with the placebo intervention are interpreted and translated into specific brain events. For instance, the expectation of a positive outcome may mobilize the neural networks involved in reward and lead to the production of dopamine. Okay, so this was, these were instances that were looked at in the, in the chapter. Okay, so that's one case. The placebo effect is a type of activity of the mind where you have the authority in the field saying the precise mechanisms remain unknown. We're not really sure how they work. The entire scientific field is based, the pharmaceutical field is using this every single day in every single area. There's not a medication on the, on the shelves right now that has not gone through the placebo uh, studies. They have no clue how they work. The second uh, topic is here it's called neurofeedback. Sometimes this is called biofeedback or neurofeedback. So what is this? This is basically the idea, and it was discovered a lot more recently, where basically you teach yourself 
or someone teaches you how to change the activity of your brain. So if we take cases where this is applied very well in the medical field, let's say, for instance, someone who suffers from epilepsy. When you suffer, brains can trigger different kinds of waves, okay? There's alpha waves and beta waves and gamma waves, and each one of them puts you in a different state, okay? We all have those. When we sleep, we're supposed to go in a certain brain activity that triggers certain types of waves. If you can't go to the other one, then your sleep doesn't go deep enough. If you can, then you're fully rested, and when you wake up, you're refreshed and you're ready to go again. Okay. People who suffer from epilepsy, let's say, this is one example, there's a whole lot, but the chapter starts with an example of that and then goes into other examples. People who are suffering from certain conditions, when their brains were completely analyzed from every angle, they saw that those conditions are associated with those brainwaves. So they created machines to train those people with practice they found the activities that trigger the right kind of waves. And then they created very simple exercises to teach someone to go back to that brainwave when they need to, so that let's say when, the, when they feel the crisis of an epileptic attack coming on, they right away bring their brain back to that kind of brain activity that generates those waves and that prevents the epileptic seizure from taking place. Understood? So what's cool and what's weird about this is if you believe in a materialist worldview where there is nothing but the brain, there is nothing but the brain controlling you, and I'm going to read some passages after what that really means, then what is controlling the activity of the brain? When you say, I'm training the brain to generate another type of wave, obviously there's something outside of the brain making the brain do something different so that the attack doesn't happen and the brain loses control. So on its own, the brain will go into an epileptic seizure. You control it in a way, you do something to it, you practice and practice and over weeks and then months, you control that. And you're able to control the seizures by every time when you feel that you're going to go in a certain direction, you bring yourself back to a certain state that does not allow the brain to go there. So in other words, you are controlling the activity of your brain. If you can control the activity of the brain, then you have to ask, what is the you that is controlling? The, the thing that's controlling the brain is what? If there is nothing else but the brain. So is the brain controlling the brain? Are you using your brain to control? Or are you, is your consciousness, your mind, controlling your brain? That's the question. Okay, so this is the idea of biofeedback. Again, please look into it. There's a million things you can research and find out about it. I'll just read very quickly a few passages. Neurofeedback is a type of biofeedback, a retraining process in which individuals use real-time information about their body's responses, such as heart rhythm or muscular tension, to learn how to change aspects of their own physical functioning and improve health and performance. By the way, this is used by athletes now around the world for everything. 
Biofeedback instruments, and now you can buy machines and put them in your home and do this. Biofeedback instruments measure various kinds of physiological activity, including, including brain waves, heart function, breathing, muscle, muscle activity, and skin temperature, and rapidly feed this information back to the user. Using this information while monitoring changes in how they are thinking and feeling, people can learn to produce at will the targeted physiological changes. At will. Very important. At will. You want to sweat? At will, you sweat. At will, you want to raise your heart rate? You raise it. At will, you want to make your brain go producing in a different kind of wave? And if you study that, you'll see you basically can become a superhuman with that, okay? If you can put yourself in producing certain types of waves and eliminating others, study alpha, gamma, and beta waves in brains, and you'll see how much you can do if you control that. And there are people who are doing that. Eventually, these changes can persist without the continued use of an instrument for feedback and monitoring. The goal of neurofeedback is specific to learn to control the brain's electrical activity described in terms of waves measure, measured at cycles per second or hertz. Okay, so that's what it is. <clears throat> Today, bio, so page 47. Today, biofeedback and neurofeedback are commonly used techniques. But for a long time, researchers in physiology believed that humans could not have conscious control over brain activity. Fortunately, a few serendipitous discoveries during the second half of the 20th century showed this assumption to be totally wrong. Okay, so let's skip now to page 63. What do we have on page 63? So end of the chapter. Neurofeedback is a potent form of biofeedback that allows us to deliberately change what is going on in our brains. So this is the key. This psycho neurotechnology gives us a glimpse of the remarkable power of our minds. Neurofeedback can enhance our cognitive functions, reduce anxiety and mood disorders, and lead to greater emotional well-being. There is also some evidence indicating that certain types of brainwave training can contribute to the occurrence of transcendental or transcendent experiences. Transcendent basically means beyond this world, okay? So you go into a more spiritual state. Moreover, real-time fMRI neurofeedback, so this is magnetic resonating, uh, resonance imaging when you go in that machine that goes around you. Feedback studies show that we can learn to control the activity of specific brain regions. I don't know if you, you understand the implications of that. But if you train enough, you can control specific areas of your brain. Your brain is not a voluntary muscle where you can you know, decide to move your leg or move your hand. And yet, if you train enough, you can control specific areas of brain physically where the brain activity is taking place and what to do with them. Okay. Uh, demonstrates that we can influence our environment with our thoughts. For all these reasons, I am convinced that the invention of the neurofeedback technology marks a significant step in our evolution. Okay, so that was a second chapter. Third chapter. The third chapter is neuroplasticity. You know what it is? Do you want to say a word about it? <laughs> anything? Does anyone want to say anything about neuroplasticity? Isn't it just basically how your mind uh, changes the connections it has, or your brain, I mean, 
connections between different parts of it are changed based on the skills you learn and all, like what you need, what you don't need, what you use, what you don't use, stuff like that. Yeah. So why is that good or why is that important? Like for example, when you get older, some 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 stuff you don't use anymore, so your brain trains itself, kind of thing. It pass like it uses. If you do what? Does it do it on its own? Yeah, I guess you have to work on it, work on those other skills to. Yeah, and basically, if you don't do that when you get old, it's basically there are parts of your brain that start dying. Mm -hmm. So you have to replace them, and for a very long time, they thought that's impossible because you can't regenerate parts of your brain. Whatever cells you're born with in your brain, that's what you're stuck with for life. So the entire, that's, that entire world of studying the brain used to be built on that idea until they discovered that, oh my God, the brain can actually regenerate parts of itself. And the neural networks that you built when you first learned, let's say, how to tie your shoelaces or wash your teeth or something like that, when you were very young, and these stay in place forever. And the more you repeat, the stronger they become. And then one day you lose that, that's it. You can't regenerate new ones, they thought. And then they, when they did, what they discovered with neuroplasticity is that you can actually generate new ones. And you can make your brain take completely different paths to generate new ones. And those different paths make you do other things because it's touching on other networks that were already in place for other things. Yeah. So people, for example, have strokes and like they, they can, like, for example, like they forget how to walk or how to eat. And then they have to relearn that, basically... Exactly. So this is the beauty of neuroplasticity. So for us, why is that relevant? What does it show? Sahata, you don't spend too much time reading passage after passage. Do you see the direct connection? So I'm saying, if I say that the only thing that exists is a brain, and I take a part of the brain out with all the neural networks that were in there, I'm done, that part should be done. And yet, I come back and say, the part that went missing, that you made go away, I want to recreate it there, somewhere else, because that part is dead now, or that part is weaker, or I had to take it out because there was a tumor in it, or whatever. Or you got a blow to your head, you went in an accident, and you had an issue, or whatever, a stroke, for instance. So now what? Um, something... Is thinking for the brain outside of the brain. So that is not taking place in the brain. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what we have right now. For it to realize that it needs to generate a whole new thing. Is it the brain on its own? It means that it's not the brain. Because how could it be the brain if it, if it thinks it doesn't, if it doesn't even know what that is? How can it, it needs to be something from But isn't it still a physical connection between, like it's a network in the... In your neurons, that is so this is the how. For me to do what I want to do, there has to be a physical neural, neural null connection. So this is what I need to recreate. Mm -hmm. But the I need to recreate is not the brain. No, I need to recreate it in the brain. So I, where's the I? I don't, gen I don't necessarily know that I need to recreate it. Sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't. So what about the scenarios where you don't know how... Okay, so someone has to do it for you. But what they're doing is, some, some, in some cases, you're doing mechanically. So we put those aside. No issue there. And this is why we spent a little bit of time at the end of the last lecture. And so maybe I'll... Because I'll, I use that as a transition to this one. 
we talked about a canvas. We said if you look at a painter who paints a big uh, canvas and it's beautiful, and you have someone who specializes in the theory of pigmentation, and they come and they look and they look at every pigment of paint that there is there, or let's say in our world, every pixel, and they tell you how every pixel is, is what it's made up of and how it's built and how the signal is coming to it and all of that, or the pigmentation of, of the, this beautiful canvas. But they're not, lo not looking at the canvas. Let's say the canvas is a, I don't know, a sunset or a flower or a face. They're not looking at that. They're looking at the parts on their own. If he can spend all the time he wants looking at those parts, will that give him the face or give him the flower or give him the sunset? No. These are two completely different things. On one side, we have the mechanics. If I see, let's say, a sunset on the screen on the monitor... That's something completely different, what it triggers in me as a human being. That's something completely different than the theory of pixelation that allows me to understand the mechanics of how that picture got there. It's one thing to understand the how, the mechanics inside the brain, how the neuronal networks are working, what chemicals are moving from where to where, the electrical impulses that I find in the... That's one thing. It's another to say, and, there's, and therefore there's intention. And therefore there's a will. And therefore there's a perception of something or an idea. Is the idea the neural network or it's something else? Is that only not the mechanics behind it? This is the difference. We're not saying that I'm capable of thinking without a brain. I didn't claim that. I need the brain. Just like I need my hand to move, to grab this bottle. But my hand is not moving on its own. This is just the mechanics of it. I would still want that bottle without my hand there. The problem is I wouldn't have the tool to do it. Right now, I wouldn't have the, the tool to do the activities that the brain does. But this is the how. This is not the what. The what is coming from somewhere else. This is the point of these. So in the case of neuroplasticity, if you understand where it's coming from and what we're able to change in the brain, you'll see that it's not the brain controlling this. Something is being done to the brain to recreate things that were lost in it. Okay? So I'll just read this little passage. Today, this evidence is impossible to ignore. Research has shown that we can intentionally train our minds through meditative practices to bolster the activity of regions and circuits of our brains involved not only in attention and concentration, but in empathy, compassion, and emotional well-being. Such mental exercises can even modify the physical structure of the brain. Changes in thoughts, beliefs, and emotions made in the context of psychotherapy also have the power to transform the brain as shown by neuroimaging studies. Additionally, there is now some evidence that mental training can slow down the cognitive decline and reduction in gray matter volume typically seen in normal aging. That was your, your uh, point. These cutting-edge findings are great news. They invite us all to unleash the full potential of the mind, the immense power that sits within us. Okay. Next topic. Next topic is this chapter called the mind-body connection. Okay, so this chapter starts with a little quote, all of your body is in your mind, 
but not all of your mind is in your body. All of your body is in your mind, but not all of your mind is in your body. Okay, this is by a yogi. In 1973, a group of Indian researchers decided to test the extraordinary claim of some yogis that they could voluntarily stop their hearts and survive. Okay? In this fascinating experiment, Yogi Satyamurti, a small man about 60 years old, was buried for eight days in a small underground pit dug into the lawn of a medical institute. He could not move, but he was connected to an electrocardiogram, an EKG, device to record his heart's electrical activity. Beforehand, he had told the researchers that he would fall into a deep trance from which he planned to awaken in seven days. A full eight days after he was buried alive. Oh, he would wake up a full eight days after he was buried alive. Yogi Satyamurti climbed into the pit, which was, the sealed, which was then sealed with bricks and cement mortar. Almost immediately, the EKG showed a rapid heartbeat called tachy, uh, tachycardia that progressed until it reached 200 be- 250 beats per minute, far above the normal resting heart rate of a 60 uh, to 100 beats per minute. This tachycardia continued for an astounding 29 hours. So for 29 hours, his heartbeat was abnormally high. Then, when researchers had feared sudden, what researchers uh, had feared suddenly happened, a straight line indicating that his heart had stopped appeared on the EKG tracing. The researchers wanted to abort the experiment. Clearly, the yogi was dead or dying, but the yogi's attendants insisted that they continue for the full eight days. For five more days, the yogi remained in the pit and the EKG continued to show a flat line. Then half an hour before the experiment was scheduled to end, the needle began to move and the rapid heart rate appeared again. At the appointed time, they unsealed the pit and brought the yogi out, 10 pounds lighter, but otherwise alive and well. His rapid heartbeat persisted for another two hours and then returned to normal. The EKG device was checked to eliminate any malfunctioning, but it appeared to work flawlessly. The researchers were unable to account for this remarkable finding, but they admitted that they were not ready to accept that the yogi had deliberately stopped his heart for five days and survived. Okay, so long story short, he controlled a part of the body that we would consider not controllable. He controlled his heart and made it stop for eight days. Okay, so this is documented. These are documented scientific studies. There's a lot of them. This is one of them. How did he breathe? The guy died. I don't think he was breathing. (laughs) The heart was not functioning. Okay. The skeptics, however, were inclined. So basically he said the scientists who conducted the experiment were not convinced that this is what he did. But they still published their studies. Because they, they saw what they saw and it worked the way it worked. The skeptics, however, were inclined to take the whole thing as some cleverly disguised trick. But for the present, we only want to put this interesting experiment on record just as an intriguing and inclusive attempt of a yogi to demonstrate a voluntary control over his heartbeat. That's what they published at the end. Okay? So basically they said, we're not sure what he did. We we were split. Some of us just rejected and some of us were skeptic. But we decided to still go ahead and publish the study in a scientific journal. 
And this is done by scientists who are controlling the experiment completely from beginning to end. Okay? Does he say how he... Yeah, he's trained himself to do that. That's how he does it. Yeah? How does come back to life? That's the whole point. 106, page 106. Let me finish this quickly. We have to stop. Yogi Satyamurti, whose story was told at the beginning of this chapter, so we're now at page 106, appeared to have stopped his heart for several days and then started it again. Other yogis have demonstrated that it is possible to voluntarily influence the temperature of the body through the practice of two more meditation. Harvard researcher Herbert Benson found that practitioners of this form of meditation who had learned to warm themselves while meditating in cold Himalayan mountains could deliberately raise the temperature of their fingers and toes by amounts ranging from 31 degrees Celsius up to 8.3 degrees uh, to, or in Fahrenheit, he repeats it. Okay, So they're raising their temperature by 8 degrees. Benson proposed that these yogis were probably able to deliberately influence the widening of blood vessels in their toes and fingers. That's his theory. Okay, so this is how they're doing this. Again, so what's the point? What are we trying to say here? The point we're trying to say is we are witnessing, we're finding more and more studies that show that there is something more than just brain activity that can be explained with physical matter. Here, the claim is, it needs to be more explored, but the claim is, someone is using their mind, their consciousness, their will, to control things that we usually say they're impossible to control, like your heartbeat, and your heart, and your blood pressure, and the temperature of your body. By these amounts, let's say by 8 degrees, which usually would kill a human being, to go up and down by that amount of, that variance in the temperature. Okay, I'm going to stop here because it's too close to the prayer. And uh, inshallah, the next, next lecture we can continue where, where we're leaving off right now. There's a few more examples that I wanted to talk about, all of them falling under this general heading of mind activities that may not be explainable in any way, shape, or form today by the activities of the brain alone. Okay, so all of that to continue this topic of uh, materialism and our refutation or objections to materialism. Sounds good? Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi al-tayyibin al-tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad.